me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this privilege. We ask that you would help us as we continue to worship you, that we would worship you in the light of your word as we read passage after passage this morning. We pray that we would understand that this is from you and how it highlights your amazing grace and our desperate need. We pray that you would accomplish your will in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever found yourself gasping for breath? It's not a happy experience. I remember when I first started playing soccer. It's a long time ago now. But I went to uh, First Baptist Christian School in Warwick, and we, I, I started uh, trying out for the soccer team. And soccer people, they like run like the whole time. So I remember running around thinking, am I ever going to be able to breathe again? Uh, and so the more you do that, the more you get to the point where you know, there, there are certain intense portions of the game where uh, you feel as though you can't quite catch your breath. And that's not even the worst experience of not being able to catch my breath that I've had. I remember when I went uh, to some training with the military, we were doing the dead man's float. Have you ever done that? You've got to stick your face in the water. And every time you lift your face out of the water, we would say, what do you do for five minutes straight? No one can hold their breath for five minutes straight. Every time you take your face out of the water, you try to take a breath, and there's someone there screaming at you to put your face back in the water. I, I remember that was, that was a very long five minutes. Uh, when you can't breathe, you, you start to recognize the importance of oxygen. Uh, life is unsustainable without oxygen. Some of us are more aware of that than others. If you have breathing condition, a breathing condition or something like that, uh, you start to recognize that necessity a little bit more than the rest of us. Uh, none of us have on our to-do list for Monday morning, get oxygen. Do you? Unless you have to go pick up a tank of it for something. You don't put that on there, but you can't live without oxygen. It's impossible. Uh, it is part and parcel of life. Without it, you will be far from completing your to-do list. For the Christian life, we are completely helpless without God's grace. We're completely helpless. Unfortunately for us, it's not like we're gasping for breath when we don't have it. And so sometimes we can operate for extended periods of time without that necessity and maybe we don't even realize that we have been neglecting the grace of God. God's grace is God's power to accomplish God's will and work. God's grace is God's power to accomplish God's will and God's work. When God tells us to be a certain way, to speak a certain way, to act a certain way, to do a certain thing, with that prescription, with that call, he supplies grace that enables us to fulfill that very act. Grace is such an integral part of the Christian life. We use it, it flows off of our lips, and sometimes it flows out of our keyboards or in, a, in a, something we're writing. We're writing about grace. Uh, the, the books of Scripture often begin with a, a wish toward grace, and they conclude with a wish toward grace. It, it's so much an intimate part of the Christian life, you, you can't start and end a letter without it. We start to think, well, that's just a normal greeting. But it's, it's something more than just a normal greeting. It is reminding us of the necessity, the necessity of grace for everyday life. Grace itself is not personal. It's not personal. Grace doesn't think about you. However, the source of grace, which is God, he is personal. He knows the grace that you need. He knows the grace that I need. And he meets each one of our challenges with an appropriate, proportional grace. As grace 
is needed, God supplies it in abundance. In Philippians chapter 1, take a look. We already read this in our responsive reading. This is how the book of Philippians begins. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you. God's supply to you. My, my desire is that in writing this, and in your receiving of this, in your consideration of this, in your meditation on this, as you seek to see this come to fruition in your life, my, my greatest desire is that God would enable you, God would supply you with everything you need to accomplish what we read here. Look at the end of the book in chapter 4. Chapter 4, right at the end of the book, verses 21 and following. Paul writes, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Is that just a... A little stamp at the end of the letter. Well, I sign all of my notes, grace and peace. Is, is that what it is? Or is there something more about this? He has enveloped, bookended this letter with a wish, a prayer, a thought of God's grace being supplied in our lives. So that all the things that God calls us to accomplish would be accomplished through him. Paul begins and concludes this letter to the Philippians, desiring grace to surround them, for the church is completely unable to establish, maintain, or display a gospel culture without the grace of God. Throughout our study of this great letter, the book of Philippians, we have used a couple of descriptions of what God is calling for among the church. We've used the term gospel partnership. Gospel partnership. We can define that as a unified participation in the gospel ministry. Gospel ministry. A unified participation in the gospel ministry. This is not for the spiritually elite. This is for the common man like me. And like you. This is not for the super saint. This is for every saint. God has called all of us who know Christ as our Savior to be active participants in gospel ministry. It it comes up, this concept of participation or fellowship or communion comes up numerous times throughout. We've also used another descriptor that is also equally important, and that is gospel culture. Gospel culture should be defined as what results what results from a unified participation in gospel ministry. So, gospel partnership is all of us actively participating together in what God has called us to do. And what happens as a result of that union, that participation, is a gospel culture is created. Every society has its own unique culture. And there are different cultures among the nations and among regions. We would know about those kinds of cultural differences between the Northeast. If you're from out of the Northeast, you come here and you think, those people are awfully strange. If someone comes from the Midwest and comes to the Northeast, they start to say, well, all of these things worked in the church I was pastoring there. And then they come to the Northeast and they find it to fall flat. Someone from the south comes to the northeast and they think, oh, the church I I went to always did this, and they try to run those programs. It's not happening. It's a different culture. It's a different regional culture. And then even among communities, from one community to the next, there's, there's a uniqueness to culture. The gospel produces a culture that is completely unique. It is not based upon race. It is not based upon styles. 
It is not based upon economic standards or status, and it's not based upon intellectual capacity. The gospel carries with it and produces from itself a culture that is all uniquely gospel, which is why we can see all through the pages of Scripture God calling people of every variety, every race, every tongue, every people, God rescuing people from various religious backgrounds. God rescuing people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. God rescuing people of different intellectual capacities. You see, at the end of Scripture, God gathering together in one all things in Christ. You see people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. They're all crying out one song, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. This is produced by a gospel culture. As we take the next 30 to 40 minutes trying to get a grasp of the whole message of the book of Philippians, it will serve us well to have that as the backdrop, this concept of a gospel culture. And so we're going we're gonna to speedily move we're not leaving the book of Philippians. You're, you're in Philippians, and, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to move our way through, marching forward and, and hitting, sticking, and moving throughout as we look at the message of this book in its larger perspective and what God is telling us about the church and about his gospel so that we will be prepared to fulfill the mandates of the church. First of all, gospel culture does not promote individuals. Gospel culture does not promote individuals. In verses 1 and 2, we read it already. I'm just going to point you to certain words here. In verse 1, Paul and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus. We are not the spiritually elite. We are not the overlords. We are servants underneath the Lord Jesus. He then tells us this was written to all the saints. That's everyone who trusts Christ as Savior. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, and then he just mentions the church leadership with the overseers and deacons. You notice how he doesn't put the overseers and deacons on some other spiritual plane? He says, hey, Paul and Timothy, we're servants of Christ. We're writing to you, the church, all the saints, and with you, among you, as part of you, is this other grouping of people, the overseers, the elders, bishops, and pastors, and deacons. Those is another word for ministers or servants. And so he's, he's incorporated all of them in one ball. Gospel culture does not promote individuals. Oh, there's... Uh, I grew up under so-and-so's leadership. Really? Okay. Well, good. You know, I cut my teeth on so-and-so's. It, who, is, who cares about the person? It's Christ. We are members of Christ's body. I'm not a follower of Calvin or Arminius or uh, Spurgeon or any of the other really great men of history or poor men of history, as it were. I'm not followers of them. Who are you a follower of? Christ alone. Christ alone. I'm not going to brand myself with someone else's name. I am a blankist. Really? Are you serious? I, he might be a great guy. Might have been a really God-fearing, God-loving, word-loving man. Great. You really want to put his name as who you are? Let's go with follower of Christ, disciple of Christ, Christian, a simple member of the body of Christ. I am a member of the redeemed. Gospel culture does not promote individuals. It promotes Christ. Secondly, gospel culture celebrates the work of God. That is, it goes part and parcel, right? You come from not... Celebrating individuals to celebrating the work of God. Look at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Well, wait a second, Paul. 
You were writing to me. Don't you want to just be really glad about me? No, I thank my God because he is the source of anything good that takes place in you. Just like he is the source of anything good that takes place in me. The celebration is God, Christ, and their work through the Spirit. Verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you. Wait a second, Paul, didn't you establish the church at Philippi? Weren't you the one who, who laid the foundational footstones? No. He who began a good work in you, he will do what? Bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is rightly acknowledging that the author and finisher of our faith is Christ. God is the author and finisher through Christ. Look at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are what? All, say it with me, partakers with me of grace. You are partakers with me. I'm a partaker. You're a partaker. You are participants. You are partners. You are gospel partners of what? Grace. Gospel culture celebrates the work of God, not the work of men. Thirdly, gospel culture anticipates fruit for the glory of God. Verses 9 through 11 are such a glorious set of verses. I would commend you to spend some time this week reading through verses 9 through 11 daily. Maybe consider memorizing it if you have not. Consider it to inform your own prayer life. Look at how he writes this. He says in verse 9, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, it would be increasing, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In other words, I want you to increase in love in how you understand it and how it comes out of you, verse 9, verse 10, so that uh, your wisdom in approving the things that are right will be there to prepare you for what? The judgment day. When you stand before Jesus Christ, I want you to be prepared for the day of Christ. Verse 11. All the while, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes, how? Through Jesus Christ. For what? For the glory and praise of of God. And so he's, he's giving us an understanding that anything good coming out of us, this increase of love in knowledge and discernment, the blamelessness that comes out of us, preparing us for the day of Christ, all of this is because we're filled, filled with the fruits of righteousness that come through Christ. There's grace through Christ and for the glory and praise of God. And so we see that gospel culture anticipates fruit for the glory of God. Fourthly, we're moving our way through. Gospel culture rejoices in the preaching of Christ. Gospel culture rejoices in the preaching of Christ. This is such a refreshing section, and I, and I think for me, maybe even more than for some of you, this really needs to inform my thinking. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Look down at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. They're proclaiming Christ, but they're doing it out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Well, you'd think, well, for one of these categories, I'm pretty happy, and the other, I wish that they would stop. So that'd be our natural inclination. But verse 18 gives us more. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. When you see ill-conceived success 
Yet, the gospel being preached, the tendency is to say, God, don't let that succeed. And the reality is, if Christ is preached, God, that is your business. And I'm going to rejoice as the gospel goes forth, true gospel goes forth. I'm going to rejoice in it, whether it's my cup of tea or not. Whether they dot their I's and cross their T's the same way I do, whether they stylistically do things the way I do, whether corporately they organize things the way that I would like to organize them, that is of no consequence. The reality is, is Christ being preached in truth? And if he is, let us rejoice in the fruitfulness of God. You know, it may very well be that some people will arrive after having received much fanfare here on earth, having influenced people with the gospel, but maybe having their name at the front of the list. Much fanfare on earth, fanfare on earth, but arriving in heaven and they might feel a little small. But yet God used the gospel to produce what only God can produce, which is the salvation of souls. We don't have to worry about who's celebrated. We don't have to worry about who is not celebrated. We're doing something far greater than the celebration of an individual other than Christ, other than God. We're doing something greater than that. And so a gospel culture enables us because of God's grace, to rejoice in the preaching of Christ even even if we are not really seeing eye to eye with some of the other elements of other people's way. Yes? I think that Paul teaches us that here. I think God teaches us that. Fifthly, gospel culture seeks to honor Christ by caring for his church. That This is an, a really incredible section, verses 19 to 30. We spent quite a bit of time on it when we were going through. When, when we see Paul, he's imprisoned, as you well know, and he's entreating the church of Philippi to pray for him. And he says, I know this is going to result in my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He tells them that. But he also says in verse 20, my desire is that, and it's right in the middle, Christ will be honored in my body Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Whether I'm delivered to serve you more, or whether I'm delivered into the presence of God. Either way, I want Christ to be magnified. I want him to be honored. I want him to be exalted. It's not about me. Gospel culture frees us to not care so much, so much, about ourselves. In verses 21 to 26, we, we see the, the concern that Paul has for the church. Look at verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. It means an opportunity to serve for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But, I love this, this is incredible. If, if, you could really, if you could really see right in front of you the gates of heaven, if you could really see in front of you, lying before you, I have now an opportunity to be face-to-face with my Savior, to be free from pain, Turmoil, anguish, persecution. To be free from sin and sorrow and death that is gripping this world. If you were to be on that door, of course you'd choose Christ, right? You'd choose to go. Let's remove myself from all the pains of this life. He says in verse 24, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, because I know that is what is needed, I know that I will remain 
and continue with you all, listen carefully, for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You see the the care for the church? His concern was the church. His concern were the Philippians. He set aside his own personal agenda because it would be better for those to whom God called him to serve. They would be progressing. They would experience joy in the faith. They would experience progress. So gospel culture seeks to honor Christ by caring for his church. Sixth, gospel culture demonstrates unwavering confidence in the salvation of God. He tells them in verse 27 to to strive for the gospel, to live out the gospel. In verse 28, not to be frightened in anything by your opponents. Well, easy for you to say. No, it wasn't. He's in jail. The last time he came to Philippi, where was he? In jail. And what happened to him while he was in jail? Oh, they had a worship service. Yes, that's true. He and Silas were singing. But before that, they were beaten. And while they were having their praise service, they couldn't raise their hands. Like, ooh, raise the roof. None of that because they were chained to the wall. My desire is that you would contend for the faith side by side, not terrified by your opponents. Why? Don't fear him who can hurt the body. Fear him who can banish you to hell. Now, a believer doesn't have to be fearful that way, do do we? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. However, we live our lives under the reverent exaltation of God, the humble surrender of our will and our way and our lives to God. And so he tells us not to be frightened. Verse 28 in the middle, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. Well, wait a second. I can't deter him by threatening. But of your salvation and that from God. When we understand what the gospel is and what God is producing from the gospel, a gospel culture produces within us an unwavering confidence in the salvation of God. That salvation takes on different forms, doesn't it? Because sometimes salvation is is kind of like what my wife's Uncle Joe experienced last night. At 2.40 in the morning, when he breathed his last breath, and pain and suffering and sorrow for him are no more. Oh, salvation. This is glorious. For those that are on the other side of it, however, that remain, that salvation for him feels different. That salvation for them is, I know that God has released him, but I know I won't wake up next to him tomorrow. How difficult that is. Some of you know what that's like. Some of us only know from a relative, but no one that sits in the same bed or sleeps in the next room every day, and now we don't see them on this life ever again. We don't don't understand it. Some of you do. It's a difficult experience, but yet we still see the salvation of God because he won't come to me, but I will go to him. For him, it's a split second. It's a moment, a twinkling of an eye almost. But for the ones left behind, I just know there's a day I'll be reunited with Christ my Savior first and foremost and those who've trusted Christ, including my loved one that I miss desperately. Salvation comes in different ways, but salvation comes to every believer in Jesus Christ. Be sure of it, my friend. You might be struggling, and it might be hard. We don't, we're not callous toward your hardship in any way, shape, or form. 
but I can tell you salvation is coming. Salvation is coming for you if you know Christ. And you'll look back and it will be of little consequence other than the exceeding weight that it has produced for all of eternity because God has given you that privilege to endure suffering. Salvation comes, and so because we're involved in a gospel culture, gospel partnership, we're in this together, God is producing a culture that is otherworldly in perspective. It only comes from him. As we move a little further, number seven, we get into chapter two, gospel culture seeks the benefit of others. In verses 3 and 4, we we have the challenge of the text. It says, do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so God is giving us this call. Gospel culture says, what do you need? What do you need? Not, what is my interest? What do I need? What do I want? How do I want this to go? It's, how can I serve others in the body of Christ to cause it to progress in faith and in joy? How can that take place? And so we have this call in chapter 2 that Paul exhibits in chapter 1, and now we see exemplified in its fullest capacity in verses 5 through 8, where we see the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrificial life and death says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, this mind is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, the gospel culture that that we see coming forth from the book of Philippians, it, it flows out of the life of Christ. The gospel culture of seeking to participate together, to form this unique culture that is unlike anything else, it's because gospel culture is based upon the gospel itself, which is Christ laying down his life, not caring for his own needs, his own pain, his own distress, but rather caring to redeem people like me and people like you. So he lays out for us this example of sacrificial living and sacrificial dying. Number eight, as we move a little further, gospel culture seeks the glory of God. Gospel culture seeks the glory of God. Verses 9 through 11 say this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In following Jesus' pattern of humility, we are not seeking to be exalted but to point people to the one who has been highly exalted. Because we know that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess. What? That Jesus Christ is Lord, is Lord, is Lord. He is Lord. Resulting in what? To the glory of God the Father. Gospel culture anticipates and seeks the glory of God. Number nine, gospel culture seeks to display the gracious working of God. You come to chapter 2 and verse 12, and you you see this, this almost petrifying verse. If you've been saved for any length of time, like a couple of decades, someone has tried to petrify you with verse 12. They have tried to make you squirm in your seat. Here's what they will say. Well, I'm not going to tell you what they would say. Here's what the verse says. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now obey, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And what they're really wanting to do is to evoke within you a fear and a trembling like you're not going to make it. If you don't obey enough, you're not going to make it. If you don't listen enough, you're not going to make it. If you're not a good enough boy or girl, you're not going to make it. That's using God's word. That is not teaching God's word. Because what I just said is in absolute and utter contrast to the gospel. The gospel tells you and it tells me, you can't. The gospel tells you and it tells me, I have failed. The gospel tells you and it tells me that I am a sinner. In fact, the gospel tells me, like it told Paul many years ago, I am the chiefest of sinners. The gospel also tells you, folks, that while you have failed and I have failed, God, in his astounding love for us, sent his son Jesus, who perfectly has fulfilled every one of the law's demands. He has done perfectly obedience. He has fulfilled perfect obedience to his Father in my place. So that when I turn from my sin and I turn to him, he grants to me, first of all, forgiveness of my sins. That's a gracious proclamation and a merciful result. Not only does he remove my sin forever, he grants to me an eternal Position in eternal righteousness. The standards that Christ has fulfilled have been placed on my account as if I fulfilled them myself. The gospel does not petrify other than to tell me that I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. The gospel shows me that God has fulfilled through Christ every demand so that in coming to him, I have a perfect, perpetual, eternal Standing before him. When, when Paul tells us to live out in obedience, work to the outside the salvation that, that you've received with fear and trembling, he follows it up in the next verse telling us, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, the things that God is calling you to do, he's working in the inside of you, let it out. Let it out. Don't hide it. Don't settle for some cheap alternative. The world offers us cheap alternatives every single day in the forms of food, in the forms of sex, in the forms of entertainment, in the forms of leisure, in the forms of, of luxury. All of those things are great in their proper place. But all of them rob joy from us when they become our God. So God tells us, he's worked this in you. Let it out. Let it out. Gospel culture seeks to display the gracious working of God. And so he tells us in verse 14, don't be a complainer. Don't be fighting with people. Because that puts the, the whole lid on what God has done. He tells us in uh, verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. How is this taking place? It's while, in verse 16, we're holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. When you look at this, the grace of God has worked in us and it should impact the outside world. The world should not see us complaining, fighting, but they should see a spirit of truth and light and love as we cling to the word of life. Tenth, gospel culture binds our affections together. Gospel culture binds our affections together. Verses 19 through 30 uh, talk about the relationship between Paul and Timothy, between Paul and the the Philippians, between Paul and Epaphroditus, 
it's, it's, it's amazing. And t- uh, Timothy's attitude toward them. Look at verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so I, may, so I too may be cheered by news of you. I want to know how you're doing. That will give me a good shot in the arm. It'll give me joy in my heart to find out that you are following after Christ. Uh, verse 20. For I have no one like him, Timothy, uh, who will genuinely, who will be genuinely concerned, concerned for your welfare. He's, he's anxious about your well-being. Verse 21, for they all, everyone outside of, of people like Timothy, seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I shortly myself will come to you also. I want to go there. I want to, I want to minister to you because I care about you. Do you see how, how all these emotions are tied together? It continues on with the discussion of Epaphroditus. Take a look at that later on today. This section, verses 19 through 30, is packed with implications for gospel partnership which produce a gospel culture. A gospel culture makes us care for one another. A gospel culture makes us care for one another, to seek one another's interests, to care about our progress and joy of faith. Number 11, gospel culture rejoices in the Lord. You see that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. We'll see it particularly in verses 1 through 3 for the time we have. It says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for dogs. Not, not the things that are like walking around on the streets. People that are going to twist the gospel. Look out for the evildoers. They're trying to twist the gospel. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These are religious zealots trying to, to change the gospel. For we are the circumcision. We are the true Christians who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So This is the, the headliner here. To, to be true Christians who worship God by the Spirit, who rejoice in Christ Jesus, who have no confidence in the flesh. In verses 4 through 6, he gives reasons why he could have confidence in the flesh if that were his thing. But he came to a point where God showed him that his own confidence in the flesh would only result in his damnation. In verse 7 through 9, we see the reason that instead of being confident in the flesh, he rejoices in Christ, it says, but whoever, uh, whatever gain I had in those things I had confidence in, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the reason that he didn't have confidence in the flesh because he knew it wasn't going to solve his problem. The only way to have confidence before the Lord is to have confidence in the Lord. The only way, ladies and gentlemen, you will see God as loving Savior as opposed to condemning judge, is if you will recognize him now and have confidence in his ability to save you. If you have confidence in your ability to be his partner in saving you, you will meet him one day, but you will meet him as your condemning judge. If you'd like to see him as your glorious, redeeming Savior, it's only going to be because you see him now as your only hope of eternal righteousness, your only hope and stay. Gospel culture binds our affections together and it rejoices our hearts in the Lord rather than ourselves. Twelve, gospel culture uh, 
pursues Christ-likeness. And so Paul says, this is, this is it. I, 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 my, my desire is to know Christ. I want to be found in Christ. I want to know him in his power and resurrection, share in his sufferings. I want to be made like him in his death. That's verse 10. In verses 12 through 14, he says, not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He obtained me for something and I haven't attained it yet. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is to be like Christ. I am striving for Christ-likeness to be on display in me and because when I'm in his presence, I am going to what? Reflect him perfectly because I'm going to see him as he is. He goes on to tell us that we need to find examples of those who follow after the same mindset uh, to pursue relationships that lead us toward Christ-likeness in verses 15 through 17. Then verses 18 through 21, Paul contrasts two types of people that have differing pursuits. You can take a look at it later. Uh, One, they're after their belly and what they can get. The other looks for Christ, their Redeemer, to come through the clouds to redeem us, right? There's two different perspectives, two different ways. As we get to chapter 4 and we come to 13, the 13th element of gospel culture that we see in this book, gospel culture produces true peace. Gospel culture produces true peace. In verse 2, you have this conflict between Euodia and Syntyche. I want them to agree because they don't. There's hostility there. He says in verse 3, they used to labor together with me. They used to be co-laborers with me and some others. All of them, all of their names are written in the book of life. These are all believers. There's a problem here. We need a resolution to this conflict because gospel culture produces peace. And when there's hostility in a gospel culture, guess what's undermined? Gospel culture. And so he tells us in verses 6 and 7 that entrusting ourselves to God results in God's peace guarding our souls. Verse, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will guard. God's peace will guard. So God doesn't say, you're anxious, Stop being anxious and find a way. He says, don't be anxious. Pray, because I know you're going to struggle with this. Pray. Pray with thanksgiving, recognizing who you're talking to. And I will supply what you need. The the solution to our anxiety is not great techniques. Better thinking patterns does help, but that's not the solution. The solution is, bring it to the Lord, recognize who he is, and let him give you a peace that is outside of you. Not a peace that you find of yourself. Not looking for inward peace from you, but peace from God, and let's see what God does. He gives his peace as a guardian for your soul. It's incredible. You and I will not produce our own peace. Only Christ can do it. And then in verses 8 and 9, he tells us that meditating on the truth of the gospel and living out the gospel result in God's peaceful presence. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Stop right there. Has he told us to meditate on that which is gospel-ish? The gospel? Meditate on the gospel? And then he tells us to live out the gospel in verse 9. What is the promise that comes with it? And the God of peace will be with you. God's peaceful presence accompanies gospel meditation and gospel living. 
Gospel culture produces true peace, a peace we can't manufacture in any other way. And so God has given us some great solutions here. Number 14, you didn't think I was going to make it, but I am. Number 14, gospel culture encourages a spirit of generosity. Gospel culture encourages a spirit of generosity. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Last week we covered 11 through 13. He's letting them know that I am not going to have my life uh, reside based upon what I can receive, but my contentment comes from the Lord. God can give me contentment, whether I have anything or not. But he continues his thank you note in verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And so we see this generosity coming out from a gospel culture, and it it results in something. The generous spirit produced by gospel culture results in the magnification of God's glory. Verses 17 and following, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so this gospel culture produces this spirit of generosity. And that generosity results in the magnification of God and his glory. Number 15. Gospel culture depends on God's grace. In verses 21 and 22 you can see the relationships formed by gospel ministry. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So this is is a common theme. You've experienced it undoubtedly. You meet someone in whatever context it is, work, on vacation, you're on vacation, you go to some other church, whatever the context is, you meet someone and you can tell there's something, something different about them. And you, in conversation, because you're, you're a gospel person, you start to introduce the gospel and they introduce the gospel back and you're like, ah, that's, this is why we, we have this sense of camaraderie. Even among people that are of different denominations and backgrounds, when someone is a a follower of Christ, and Christ is the sole means of their eternal salvation, there is something that gives us a commonality with them. I experienced at chaplain school, it's like, it's, it's really unique. Um, people from, from all varieties of church backgrounds, you find out, what, what's the gospel though? What's the gospel? And, and you, you find out who really is a gospel proponent. And you can have... Fellowship. Now, you might not see eye to eye in a number of areas, but there's something there. The saints greet you. The brothers greet you. There's something unique. We can, we can leave certain elements of our discussion to the outside because we're not going to agree about them. How about Christ? Do we agree on him? Can we have fellowship around Christ? These people, whether we agree with all their peripheral doctrines or not, we're going to spend eternity with them. Can we not get along now? Yes, we can. We don't have to fight about these things. This is because of the grace that God gives us. There's something that that he produces, a commonness among us, because we know we're all dependent upon him. When we get to verse 23, he makes this statement. It's the last line of the book. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is not just a passing sentiment. Nothing, 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 nothing of which Paul has written could be accomplished without the grace of Jesus Christ. Nothing. There is no gospel culture without the grace of Jesus Christ. There is no gospel partnership 
without the grace of Jesus Christ because there is no gospel without the grace of Jesus Christ. When we boil this down to its most basic form, what is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? The grace of God is God giving us what we do not deserve. Listen carefully. Because I am a sinner, I do not deserve to be called a child of God. I do not deserve to fellowship with God. I do not deserve the peace of God. I do not deserve to spend eternity with God. But because of the grace of God in our Lord Jesus Christ, God has made a way for me to be called a child of God. In John 1.12, the Bible says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, the authority, to become children of God. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle John, speaking to a confused and struggling church who were being deceived, he writes to them and he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, to you and to me, that we should be called children of God? And so we are! Yeah, that deserved a clap. We are! If you've trusted Christ. So we are. The reason why the world does not know us. Is that it did not know him. Beloved. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that. When he appears. We shall be like him. Because we shall see him. As he is. I don't deserve to be called a child of God, and yet God made a way. God has made a way for me to have fellowship with him. If you have trusted Christ, you, you revel at this statement in 1 John chapter 1, in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare, or we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The one in whom John leaned against at the table. I felt him. I've seen him. I've heard him. I proclaim him to you. This one you can have fellowship with if you're a child of God. God's grace has enabled us not only to move from sinner to saint, but sinner to child. And a child who formerly had no fellowship with God to a child who has fellowship with his heavenly Father. Fellowship. God has made a way for me to have peace with God. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's gracious work. God has made a way for me to have eternal life with him. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God accomplished this by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to live a life that I could not live fully obedient. Jesus died a sacrificial death, a kind that no one else could have died, one that was fully sufficient to pay for my sin. Jesus Christ was raised from the grave in a way no one else could have been raised, fully victorious over sin, Satan, and death. Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven and currently sits at the right hand of God, and he is always praying for me. Are you a child of God? Have you experienced the forgiveness of your sin? Do you have fellowship with God? Are you at peace with God? 
do you have eternal life? If yes, if your answer to those questions is yes, maybe it's a yes, 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 yes! If it's a yes, it's only because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are not sure, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is being offered to you this morning. He can take away your sin and remove it from you as far as the east is from the west. He can make you righteous and in perfect standing before the Father forever. He can give you eternal life. This is the grace of God. The gospel culture called for in the book of Philippians is supplied supplied through the Lord Jesus Christ himself and himself only. Let's pray together. Father, help us that we would yield ourselves to you. I pray for anyone who's not a believer here this morning, that's never experienced forgiveness of sin. I pray that you would, even this hour, cause them to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. I pray for those of us that know Jesus as our Savior, that we would be grateful for the grace that we have received. And I pray, Father, you'd enable us to live out a gospel partnership that results in a gospel culture that is absolutely in step with what you've revealed in the book of Philippians. We need this. We desire this for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.